Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us live from Louisiana, one of my all-time favorite places, is Devannon Hubert, and he is the author of Sex, Drugs, and Jesus, a memoir about his struggles with drug addiction, homelessness, and serving in the armed forces, as well as an HIV plus diagnosis and rejection from his church for sexuality. He's also the host of the same-named podcast, Sex, Drugs, and Jesus podcast, and he's the owner of Down Under Apparel. There's so much more to explore with this awesome man. So without any further delays, how are you, Devannon? I am fantastic. How about you? I'm doing really good. We have just moved into a new house, and we finally have stuff in order. So you're our first official podcast in the new place. So thank you for that. Oh, I'm so honored. I'm so honored. There's nothing wrong with getting your house in order, baby. <laughs> yeah. So um, your bio is spectacular. It's a, lo- a lot longer, and I try to only read a quip at the beginning. Um, so I'd actually, before we get into all of your life story, we do have our three standard questions I'd like to ask you, which is, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? I'm 39. I'll be 40 in December. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but Los Angeles is really where I consider home. That's where I really grew up and became an adult, as far as I'm concerned. And um, what generation do I consider myself to be a part of? Well, all of them, because I have something in common with everyone. That's a great answer. I haven't heard that one yet, and I love that. That's awesome. Cool. So, yeah, I didn't know about the Los Angeles part, but I'm a San Francisco native, so um, I'm definitely familiar with L.A. Um, So I, I... I have the feeling that you're a good storyteller, so it's probably best to kind of let you direct your own interview of yourself. So let's just hear uh, kind of like your life story up until the point of when you were going to start writing your memoir. So just kind of if you could encapsulate the wild ride up to that. Well, like I said, grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There's nothing impressive about that. You know, I'm from the hood. Um, it was like five of us in like a one bedroom, half of a duplex. So the thing couldn't have been more than four or 500 square feet. You know, my brothers and I shared a bunk bed in the, and that had, was in the same bedroom as my parents. So, you know, we grew up in abject poverty, but, um, you know what? We had food, lots of red beans and rice and jambalaya and gumbo and such. And so, you know, we didn't go to sleep hungry most nights. And so after I get tired of, got tired of all of this, you know, I went off to the Air Force right when I was 17. I don't know that I recommend going to the Air Force at such a young and tender age, but I did what I did. And so I managed to get out of the Air Force without, <laughs> without a dishonorable discharge, but barely. I got a couple of Article 15s because I was a, I was a, a bit of a hellion. You know, I became, became myself. I started attending raves out there in Tucson, Arizona. And I got all these piercings and stuff, and I started hanging out at Hot Topic and piercing parlors and just becoming my wild, rebellious self that I was destined to be in the military wasn't having none of that. They weren't interested in my individuality. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't get along so great. I um, became I worked on aircraft in Tucson, Arizona, at Davis Mountain Air Force Base. Then I leaped on over to... Um, San Bernardino County and worked in LA and everything like that. And that's how I came to love Los Angeles so permanently as I do. 
So I was able, I was in there from 2000 through 2006. So yes, I was in for 9-11. That was a whole hot mess. And um, I made it out without getting my enlistment snatched from my hands and moved to Houston, Texas. Uh, so now I'm in Houston, Texas, just four hours away from home. I didn't want to come back home, but I didn't want to get kind of back close as I had been gone since I was a child. Um, should have stayed in California. Should have stayed in California. And um, so I started going from job to job, working at the Gap Express. You know, now I'm back at now I'm at the Texas Workforce Commission recruiting again, just like I was in the Air Force. Did that for a year. Um you know, now I'm at Centerpoint Energy at the light company. Well, while I'm here, I'm also volunteering at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, because I have a big heart for volunteerism. One of the medals I got when I was in the Air Force was the Military Outstanding Volunteer Service Medal. I have a big heart for any kind of uh, philanthropic, altruistic, all the stuff that has to do with helping someone other than myself. I'm here for it. Was raised in the church and everything like that. I was an altar boy in the Pentecostal church from the eighth grade to the time I graduated high school. You know, always volunteering. So now I'm at Lakewood Church, um, singing in the adult choir, singing in the adult choir, worship leading in the kids ministry, teaching in the kids ministry. My volunteer supervisor in the kids ministry. You know, I tend to go hard at anything I bother to do. Well, this is all well and great until I apply for a job at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. And then um, I had been volunteering there for like two or three years, and they decided to go and check my MySpace page once I um, had volunteered. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I, I know what MySpace is, but uh, think think Instagram, Facebook, young kids it's, out there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the original social media platform before Facebook and everyone else came along. And... Um, and so I had a very naughty picture on the front profile. One of me and one of my homegirls had got tipsy one night and decided to do a photo shoot of me. And I ended up just in a cowboy hat and some underwear. And I thought I looked hot. And so I slapped the picture up on my, I mean, I was, I was vain in, in my twenties and I, you know, just like many are, and I do not judge people for looking at themselves you know, taking all these pictures of themselves, I did the same thing. I mean, you're not doing it right if you're not that way in your 20s. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've gotten some better since now, but you know what? It was what it was in those days. And so um, so I had that as my profile picture. I looked good, and then I had spent time as a model before. You know, I modeled um, for first models in Houston for a while, and I was also a model on the team board back when department stores and malls used to have team boards. Um, back in the day here. So, you know, I wasn't afraid to get in front of a camera. So you know, I was like, hey, let's work it. Well, they, the people at Lakewood found this picture. Then they also found out through my MySpace page that I was hanging out in Montrose in Houston, Texas. Montrose is the neighborhood. It's like your Castro district in San Francisco, Bourbon Street in New Orleans, you know, West Hollywood in Los Angeles. So you got your Montrose in Houston, Texas. Now I had done a really good job of keeping the gay side of my life from Lakewood. First mistake, don't ever volunteer anywhere that you can't fully be yourself. But because um, I shouldn't have lied on the application. When I was applying the volunteer at Lakewood in the kids department, they had on there explicitly, like, if you're not straight, we don't want you around children. And I was like, okay, this is just another one of those military don't ask, don't tell things, you know, okay, I've been doing this for the last six years. 
you know, I was conditioned to be that way. What I should have done was ran and not and not been willing to suppress a part of myself, even though I wanted to do good. But I was like, I'm not trying to have sex with no little boys. I'm just coming here to volunteer and then I'm going to go have sex with me some grown men downtown. You know, I'm not trying to. That's not what I'm here for. And besides, in order to volunteer at that church, you have to give them your license, social security card, to do all these background checks and everything. Like, it's not smart to commit a crime or you're going to give people your whole life, all, all of your information. <laughs> so, so no, I wasn't trying to commit any crimes, but they saw that I was hanging out in Montrose. They saw the naughty photos, so they called me in for a meeting. I asked them if I was in trouble because, you know, sometimes, sometimes I just get that feeling and um, my MySpace page views began to spike, and I was like, I'm not that popular. And so I made the page private so I could see what was going on. Well, it turned out the people at Lakewood started passing the profile around to everyone on staff so they could take a look at this other side of Devan and that they just couldn't believe existed the scandal and, uh, you know, that I would have an outside life that they couldn't control. And so... So they lie. She's all, they were at least at the point where I had asked them if I was in trouble. She, the, the girl in charge of the kids choir and everything was like, no, we just want to have a friendly chat. And so I go up there with my volunteer jersey uniform on. Okay, so just imagine, okay, we're at this long table. They take me up to the fifth floor, which at Lakewood is where all the staff, where the, where the main staff is at. Like, you have to have a key card to get up there. So we're at this long table. It's just the adult pastor and the kids pastor at one end and me at, me at another. Very creepy. And I didn't even much know that the other guy was going to be there. I thought it was going to be me and her talking. And so they launch right into their tirade. And, and she's all like, we saw your picture. We, we saw what you've been up to. You know, like they're all like, how could you? And I'll never forget her words. She said something like, you can't be doing that, hanging out there with them referring to the non-straight people and she talked about us all like we were just like less than human and i'm all like okay well tell us how you really feel and so they fired me from all my volunteer positions which to this day i can't understand how you fire volunteers and immediately from that day forth i was no longer i never felt welcome there and so I, that is how I got kicked out of Lakewood Church. Now, some people go, okay, well, if they verbally tell you you can't come back, then I have to explain to people. Like, if you kick a person out of one part of an organization, you kick them out of the whole thing. You don't go, hey, you can't do your favorite stuff that made you feel connected to this church, but you can still come, you know, and just kind of hang out. Now, they told me that I could be an usher. I, could, I guess they consider an usher to be a demotion or something heathenist evil, you know, sinful people can do, but not the other stuff. They offered me a conversion therapy package and told me I could be an usher in order to work it. <laughs> in order to work my way up into the church's graces. And I told them, I didn't, I didn't, okay, I had, I had just like two decisions on that day while I'm sitting here looking at these people. I was like, I can either, I can either lay hands on them. I'm trying to pick my words without swearing. I was like, so I could either lay hands on I didn't even lay hands on them and go to jail. I didn't have any felonies at that point, though I do now. <laughs> Three of them or four, depends on how you want to look at the case. And um, I can either lay hands on these people and go to jail or I can just walk out. And so I chose to just walk away. And so since I had been rejected by this church, it made me feel rejected by God, even though God had not rejected me. I had got the two conflated. 
I don't recommend people to confuse churches with God because they're not the same. And uh, But I made that mistake and I did that and I caused what they did to me at Lakewood to cause a rift in between me and God. And it would be about five years before I ever walked into a church again. And um, because of that instance that happened, and so I went into the nightlife. I was like, well, I'll go somewhere where I know I'll be accepted. So I started going to more nightclubs. And along with the nightclubs came the more boys, and along with more boys came more narcotics. Now, they had boys that offered me drugs before, but I was in the military. I didn't want to get fired. You kicked out of the military, or I had to be at church. I was at church like four, four or five days a week, at least 10 hours a week. And I had some time to fill you know, in my schedule. And so I was angry. I rebelled. And whereas I would have turned down their drugs, I said, no, you know what? I'll take that drug this time. Let's see what this is all about. Let's see what I've been missing out on by being in church. I was in church so much. I didn't even know what Sunday Funday was. Now, Sunday Funday is a popular thing in the straight and gay communities. I didn't know that clubs were open at 11, 12 a.m., 9 a.m. for you to turn up. I had no clue. I had been being in church my whole life. I was somewhere in my late 20s when all this happened. Just finding out what Sunday Fundy is. That's how isolated I was due to the time that I was spending at church. Okay, so I started doing everything. Was it that ecstasy pill at first? My eyes, I never thought they could look like Steamboat Mickey. Just nothing but black pupils and just ecstasy was fabulous. Then came the cocaine and, and all this other stuff. And then... I kind of started, you know, buying in bulk because I could afford it. I've made like between 30 and 70 an hour working for the light company. Now I was a substation electrician at this point. So I had money. So I was just having some experimentations. I had a four day work week. I was working four ten, so I could literally be high from um, Chuck's Friday evening to Tuesday morning. And so without even having to call in drunk or, <laughs> or high or whatever, and so I just got wilder and wilder and wilder. Um, then I ended up getting HIV. Well, I had hepatitis B first. I went to donate blood because uh, I have O negative blood. And I'm all like, everyone wants this. They can have it too. And so I get this letter. Hey, we got you found hepatitis B antibodies in your blood. So don't bring us your filthy blood anymore. Was basically what I got from the letter. So that was um, an interesting way to find that out. So I don't, you know, so I, I, I kind of tried to, I tried to slow down my ways, my horror's ways a little bit, but I guess I didn't do it enough because then I ended up getting, getting HIV. This, the doctor who was treating me, quote unquote, for the hepatitis found this out and didn't tell my primary care doctor. He waited till New Year's Eve uh, 2011 to leave my positive HIV diagnosis on my voicemail, which didn't mix which didn't mix well with the array of narcotics that I had lined up to do that night. And so, <laughs> and so from that point on, I started getting sloppy. I was selling more, beginning to become more of a drug dealer at this point. And now I'm starting to get arrested because I'm not thinking straight. Um, so I got the first felony. I was ended up being a legal search and seizure because they literally pulled my pants down and whipped my, you know, my, my dick out so that I could, um, cause I had, I had my eight ball of meth stashed under my nuts. And so the cops can get thirsty at times. And so they just went a little bit too far, too fast. And so the, so the, the grand jury, you know, really ruled that one in my favor. The next time, not so much, I was moving more and more weight and, you know, 
at this time, at this point, I'm doing crystal meth. It was the last drug that I was like, I held off. I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And eventually I was like, oh, hell, let's just do it. And so that became my response for everything, man. After I got kicked out of church, I used to be like, no, 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 I shouldn't do that. I'm not going to do that. And then I was like, well, just yes to everything. Let's just do it all. And so, but I, it was a, like a slow degradation, though. It wasn't instantly. And so now SWAT comes to get me. They said they sent an informant in to get me just like they do all great drug dealers. And uh, so they set me up, did a few controlled buys and everything like that. Um, from my understanding, they tried to get me a good like five or six times that I was always in the mood so much. It was hard for them to pin me down. And then one night in like May of 2012, um, I heard the pitter patter of little feet outside my door after the snitch had just left, dropping off the first bottle of Adderall in my house to plant there so that the cops could be sure to find something. And um, I, roll, I go up to the door, I look through the peephole, and there's this like men on either side of the door, semi-automatic rifles, face shields, Kevlar vests, and everything. And I'm like, oh no. So I turn to like run and everything like that. I slip and fall, face plant underneath the table. Uh, the boom sound happens. The door flies across the foyer and all of these men come rushing in. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm thinking I'm just like going to get shot full of bullets at this point, but I'm curled, I, <laughs> I'm curled up in the fetal position now underneath the kitchen table and the cops are looking at me like, okay, this is just like a scared little child. This is not, <laughs> this isn't actually Frank Lucas or John Gotti or, <laughs> you know, and all of those people. <laughs> and, so, and I was never a violent drug dealer. I just had good business skills. So, and I learned a lot of that from being a military recruiter. I have heard it said that military recruiters make great drug dealers, you know, and, it, and it's true. <laughs> and so I could, you know, I'll just say like this, the people I was getting my meth from were moving about, I think two, like maybe like two kilos a day. And then, and so I was, um, I was moving enough weight to get their attention. I'll just say it like that. <laughs> so, but I didn't even have to try. I just it was myself and I was fun and I was outgoing and I didn't cut the dope. And it was that simple. Well, I, I am more than fascinated by your story because there's a lot of points in this story where you've touched on spirituality and disconnection and connection. So I'm kind of curious at this point in the story where I just stopped you, where are you like spiritually? Are you, are you completely lost or is that like still going on kind of as an undercurrent? No, at this point I'm still completely lost. There is a, a silence in between me and heaven. I'm no longer going to church. I'm no longer praying. I'm no longer fasting. I've, Quit. I've given up on all tithing. Uh, anything that I used to associate with religion is not happening. What was motivating you up until the point where you broke? Like, I mean, I, I completely understand why you broke from the church and everything you said made more than enough sense to me. So I'm kind of more curious about initially before that break, were you spiritual because it was something you learned as a child and it was just kind of inherited and you just did it and you went along with it? Or did you have like deep, deep spiritual moments in your youth? Well, we all grow at different points. Now, I, the Lord revealed, revealed himself to me through dreams, because I'm a dreamer and I dream a lot. That's like my primary gift. So I was called at a young age. You know, I had a, you know, a, a dream about like a cross that came and appealed to me and stuff like that. Yes, I was raised in church, 
I had spiritual experiences in church, but I had my most meaningful, meaningful ones out of church. However, I was not, I was not mature enough. I was not as mature as I thought I was because I did at that point when I got kicked out of Lakewood, what a lot of people do and conflate God with the church. What I should have done was just found me a different church maybe a gay affirming church or something like that. But I, I hadn't yet separated God from the pastors. I hadn't yet, I hadn't yet separated God from the churches, you know, and when we start out, we may need churches to kind of, give us that religious community to get a feel for the life that we're in, or maybe to learn how to read the Bible a little bit, you know, but at some point, and this is why I'm a big advocate of people outgrowing churches and outgrowing preachers now, because it shouldn't be a permanent stop. It's just like, we don't say in college forever, you know, we shouldn't need someone to always teach us about God. We know how to read. We can do this ourselves. But at that point I wasn't mature enough yet. So, I thought that I was there for the right reasons, and I do believe I was there for the right reasons, but there was a level that I hadn't reached yet. So that now now when preachers do silly things and crazy things and hurtful things, I don't get angry and throw God, I don't don't throw the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater. You know, I know how to separate them, but I didn't have that ability then. And I'm curious because I normally don't bring up the following subjects just because it can... uh oddly enough, divide people. I think it's actually a unifying thing, but you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the term intersectionality. And I think you're like a very good example of why that word exists and why we should have it. And so um, for our audience, just in case they're not aware, intersectionality is something like where you have multiple identities and where do they intersect? So for example, I'm a white American, but I'm also Cuban. So I have an intersection of Cuban meets white. Um, So for you, I'm curious if like any of this intersectionality was helpful or hurtful as you were like uh, dreaming and conversing with God? Well, for me, I think, I think it made the right foundation for who I am now. It took me a really, really long time to understand all of my different sections. And I think that that probably can be said of, I think probably most of us throughout this life because our sections and the things that make us up are subject to change as we grow and evolve. And, and then as we just grow in awareness, and being the complex individual that I am, you know, it made me attractive to a lot of different nonprofit organizations to volunteer for them because I do bring value. But there comes a point where there's certain parts that they don't want. So the main intersectionality is like, OK, if I'm not straight, you know, they what do they how, how much am I really going to be accepted in a regular church? <laughs> you see. So I have the gifts and the talents to add value, but they have a problem with my personal lifestyle. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think part of why I'm asking this is because I think you're like a very good role model for young people. I mean, we, we, we joked and I was laughing along with you about what it's like to be in your twenties. And and then when you got into like, you know, you're further and further, uh, what's the word? Path. (laughs) You're, you're, as you went further down the path of not only using drugs, but selling them and just like that lifestyle, you know, I think it, most people, when they make assumptions about people like us, don't make the assumption that we're good people who are making decisions based on like what's happened to us. And so they don't really understand how, quote unquote, a good person can do, quote unquote, bad things. And so I see you as like a hero. And, I, you know, I'm sure in your book and on your podcast, you're, you're dealing with this a lot. And so for the purposes of our show, we're trying to explore how our morality comes from spirituality. So, you know, I was going to ask you earlier, but now is probably as good a time as any. Um, 
what do you think happens to you when you die? And then how does that relate to these dreams and conversations you've had with God? What happens to us when we die? I had an experience when I was in um, like high school. I had like, um, from what I was told, it was some sort of like, maybe like a heart rhythm thing where I like woke up in the middle of the night. And I think we've heard of teenagers kind of like weirdly dying, like just randomly being on a basketball court or in their sleep. You know, and I woke up and I couldn't catch my breath. Like, so like my breath was leaving, you know, it was leaving away. And I, and it was like, I saw down this tunnel and I saw people I knew and I saw people that I didn't knew, but a person, the one person I saw that I knew, I knew was someone who's dead already. And I thought that I was dying and because I couldn't breathe. Like I couldn't catch my breath. It was leaving and there was nothing that I could do to force it to stay. But I just happened to wake up the next morning so I, so the, so, so, so when death comes like, like for you, there isn't anything that you can do to prevent it. And so when I was young, I had these visions or these, these, these grandeur ideas that I could live forever and everything like that. So I wanted, which is not true. That, that experience that I have wasn't enough to, to, to drill that into me. When I got HIV, I knew that my mortality was a real, my mortality was a real thing. So the first thing about death is to accept that it is a, a fact and that it is a part of life. And so what happens when we die, I'm not really an advocate of reincarnation. I don't have any sort of proof to back that up. I can't read through say like the Hebrew Bible and find anything to justify that. I do know that the people, people who have died, like my grandmother, my pastor, Evangelist Nelson, they come back in spirit form and they speak to me like in dreams and stuff like that. Uh, people have told about like, say a loved one that was close to them may have worn a certain fragrance or something like that. And they may smell that fragrance at times. And they, then they know that that person's spirit is around them. Um, just, just from the experiences that I've had with the people who have died and who still come back and communicate with me, I know that there, there must be some sort of awareness that dead people have to what we're doing and they still have an influence over it. So when I die, when I die, my prayer is that I'm able to manifest as a spirit form to help people in the same way that my elders are helping me now. Damn, that is a great answer. And I'm... <laughs> I mean, I could tell just from like our brief correspondence and everything about reading about you that you were going to be a very kind and humble individual. Um, I was also hopeful that you would be as exciting to talk to and listen to as you are. So that's why I was interested to let you self-guide your own story, which I'm glad I did. Um, you're, you're a hell of a storyteller. And I don't mean making up a story. I mean telling your, your real story. So um, we, are, we are running out of time. We are not out of time. So... I, I really want to give you a few more opportunities to share your immense wisdom, but I just want to take this moment to thank you for not only that answer, but for your service, your service while you're here and alive and your service after you come back um, as a spirit. Cause I, I believe in everything and I'm really open to all interpretations. And I think what you said sounds plausible. So I, I am curious going back to your, your current status. Um, uh, did you, did you clean up and find Jesus as they say? Like, what was the? Uh, how did you nip all that up? I re-entered the spiritual path like anew. So I started going to like Buddhist temples and doing different things like that. And I think everybody should do the same thing. Check it all out and see what appeals to you. Um, I don't just hang out with people who worship Jesus. Most of my friends don't really have religious affiliations at all, and I don't care. 
you know, um, but I went to God and I prayed for myself, you know, and I, and I studied the Bible for myself. I don't go to churches anymore, not because I'm bitter, but because I don't need them. I've outgrown them. Like there's nothing that a preacher can teach me that I cannot open a concordance, look up a commentary, Google it, find it out myself. I don't need them. And churches have agendas and stuff like that, which is a whole other conversation. And I don't want to be a part of their agendas because it tends to be very controlling. Um, and so I believe in God. I believe in God because of the way he's revealed himself to me, the way he spared my life when I was homeless in Houston and everything like that. And the power that he still manifests through me and my dreams and stuff like that. Um, my, one of my greatest prayers is for God to reveal himself personally to people you know, in a way that they're going to know that he's talking to them. So not me, not any preacher on TV, not the local parishioner, not the priest, for God's sakes, not the priest, you know, and, and, and none of those things, you know, we don't have to go through a priest to get to God. You know, so my, my greatest prayer is that God will reveal himself to all of us individually in a way that that can't be denied, that you just can't deny it. And, um, and I started over and I told God, like, look, I've been through so much and so much, so much lies have been told to me over the years. I got real, real with God. I was like, I'm just going to start over new. I'm abandoning the concept of right and wrong. I'm just going to learn like a baby starting over and let you tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing so I can get people's voices out of my head. That's really powerful. And uh, again, I, I just think it's so exciting. I'm 40. I just turned 40 last year. So, I mean, we're, we're of a similar age and it's just incredible to hear everyone's journey and how they kind of, not everyone, but most of us get to this point where we're, learning that we're learning and I, and I hear it in all your answers and I hear it in all your, your, um, the, the way you recap your life. It's just incredible. So, um, I always give my guests one last word on the podcast. I don't like to end with my own thoughts. So you have the floor, you have the floor of the internet and the people who listen to the show. Um, so what would you like to say to them? I would just like to say to people to be more open-minded to people who are unlike you and, and, and to be very empathetic and sympathetic towards people who are going through struggles like drug addiction and stuff like that and to remember uh, and, and just even being homeless or in and out of jail and remember it's, it's, it's never a simple fix you know to just be patient with people and stuff like that and just to show more love and in terms of spirituality pick a path you know because the spirit and the soul is a part of who you are so whether it's going to be god or whomever but just don't leave it untouched. That way you don't fall out of balance. Like don't leave your spiritual side unattended to. Um, and don't be angry, you know, at preachers and stuff like that, like I was. Don't be jaded. Let the anger go. It focus on what's going to work for you and, and, and not being pissed off at them. That's awesome. Well, Devan and Hubert, thank you so much. Um, you have led a very awesome life, and I'm sure there's many, many, many awesome more years ahead of you. So please go to sexdrugsandjesus.com and check out his stuff and uh, listen to his podcast. And also, just please listen to the words of all these guests because week after week, we're getting the same messages from everyone, which is listen more, love more, be tolerant, be tolerant of yourself. And uh, I think that's a great way to go out. So for everyone listening at home, uh, my name is Mike Oppenheim. You've been listening to Coffee Talk, and we will see you and I feel that you're near me and I see you on the moon and then I see that you see me and I see